book of Genesis. Beginning of 2011, we started with a series called Beginnings, History, Mystery, and Theology. And then beginning uh, at the beginning of July, we said, well, we're still in beginnings. Beginnings of two, the story continues because there's a lot more that's happening in this book. And we started with, uh, kind of followed up with the Abraham story in Genesis chapter 18 is where we started. Now we're all the way in Genesis chapter 50. Now, I personally am a huge fan of sports radio. Anyone who's known me for quite some time knows that I'm a sports radio junkie. If I had my way, I would listen to it all day long, in the car, on my iPod, wherever I could go. I don't get tired of it. I love it. I think I started when I was about 10 years old, because that's when I bought my GE clock radio that is still on my nightstand, one of the best investments I ever made. And I would go to sleep listening to Mariner's game and then post-game talk and analysis of what's happening next and all sorts of things. I love sports radio. And being a displaced American, I am not a huge fan of the sports radio talk that goes around here uh, because most of it is not too interesting to me. I don't care too much about whether a hockey player shaved his beard or not in July because there's much better sports information going on. So I've jumped onto the technological bandwagon. I listen to podcasts. So a, n- a number of, of different um, radio sports people down there in the States. And my favorite one, my favorite one, I listen to him uh, whenever I can. He does a three-hour show. And at the end of his show, the last segment of his show, he spends about three or four minutes, and they end with this game called, What Did We Learn Today? Very simple. It actually sounds very much like, like what your parents say to you when you were a kid. And you're like, are you serious? I learned nothing at school today. But when you've got a three-hour show full of interviews injury updates, predictions, humor. I mean, it's quite entertaining. And so the host and and the four producers who are also on the radio with him, they go around the room, what did we learn today? And we hear a whole bunch of of different things. Now, this is a bit of a game that my wife Melissa and I have started to play ourselves. If we have people over for the weekend, if we're on vacation, sometimes we'll look at each other on the dinner table and we'll say, "What what did we learn today? What did you learn today? And it's a fun little summary of, of some little piece of minutia or some summary statement or some insight. So to give you a, a sense of what our summer's been like, I thought I'd share a few of the things of what we've learned this summer. Uh, I learned that Hudson likes brownies more than cucumbers. <laughs> I learned that the drought in East Africa is the worst in the past 60 years. I learned that it's not a good idea to host people for steak when you're low on propane. I learned that Keith would rather wash dishes than find Tupperware for leftovers. I learned that Canada's Little League World Series team is from Langley, and no one seemed to care about it. Like, seriously, that was huge news. Not one person really told me about that at all. I learned that everyone loves the idea of buying low and selling high, but nobody does it. Everyone gets freaked out. What have you learned this summer? Now, I take this concept, and I've tried, as we've had various speakers come and and preach to us from the book of Genesis, I've tried as I've read through the book of Genesis and our momentum journaling and through some of the Psalms, I've tried to take each of these pieces and said, okay, what did I learn just now? What's significant? What What is God saying to me? How is this important? What did I learn today? Now, I could probably fill the next 30 minutes or so with, a list of bullet points of things that I've learned this summer through our speakers and through my readings, but I actually don't really care too much if you know what I learned today. I'm much more concerned with what you learned throughout the summer. 
What are the things that you've learned from this book? What are the big, large themes that you've seen connected from Genesis, from the beginning, all the way now to the story of Joseph? What's God's been speaking to you? What sort of action points have come from his teaching? Well, I want to give a little bit of a review of what we've looked at. Not giving you teachable points, but summarizing these stories because this might jog your memory as you ask this question of what did you learn this summer? There's 10 canvases behind me and they're going to be up on the PowerPoint screen as well. And we'll just look at some of the stories, some of these snippets of things that we learned about throughout the summer. We started with the story of Abraham pleading to God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading for more time before they were judged. And this painting was made by Roz's Kerr's grade one classroom. Two students created that canvas. Our second week, we had Sam and Louis Friesen. They created this canvas. It's almost three-dimensional, in fact. And this was the story of Abraham sending his servant out to find Isaac a wife. Our third canvas was made by Aaliyah Brown. And you can very much tell what's happening there in the tent. This is Isaac, who was blind and old of age, and he's given a blessing not to Esau, but to Jacob, who has deceived his father and his brother, and he's now taken the birthright and the blessing. Danny Ferguson, he did this canvas, painted this brilliantly, and this is the depiction of the wrestling match between the angel of the Lord and between Jacob. And Jacob is striving, he wants a blessing. And so the Lord changes his name to Israel. Tanya Vandenbosch, she painted this one, and this is a depiction of the embrace, this warm embrace, which is so surprising because this is Jacob and Esau. This is Esau who had 400 men and who had vowed earlier that he was going to kill his brother. And, and we see here that there is some type of reconciliation in Genesis chapter 33. Our next story is about Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. And we see there, one of the three pictures, we have Joseph who is sleeping and we have these two dreams that really foreshadow what his life's going to be about. About prominence and leadership and greatness. That was by Evan, Nathaniel, and Timothy Beyer. And then, we're in Egypt now. Joseph has been sold off into slavery by his brothers and this is the sexual advance of Potiphar's wife and we see here the, the action portrayed in this canvas that was uh, made by Joyce Sands. And this is Joseph who is fleeing away, fleeing away from temptation. Our eighth canvas, this is Sienna Chua. And this is the whole family together. Four-year-old Sienna made this. It's just beautiful. We have Joseph in the far right corner, the coat of many colors you can see there. And this is the family united together in Egypt finally. And you might remember that this actually uh, is how the biblical story portrays, but this is, was just last week's message that Ken Esau gave. And then our final canvas here, which was two weeks ago when Ron Taves was speaking, uh, this is the branches of Jacob's family. We have 12 branches for the 12 tribes, and this corresponds with Genesis 49, where Jacob on his deathbed is giving blessings and curses to his sons according to their actions, according to, to the seeds that they have planted in their lives. And our tenth and final canvas is behind me, and we'll show that in just a little bit. Uh, that was made by, by the court family. And uh, it's this summary statement of the whole book, which is God is good. God is good. So what have you learned this summer through these stories? What sort of impact will this have 
on your life? What have the characters taught you? How has your view of God been shaped? Now, I ask these questions because this book, you know, this book of Genesis, the book of the Bible, is not written for entertainment purposes. You know, it's, not, it's not a movie. It's not a novel. It's not just here where we can say, oh, that was interesting and that was fun and, and remember this happening and that was interesting. It's actually written with purpose. I mean, these are stories that were passed down around the campfire perhaps, around family gatherings, uh, around worship centers. It was an oral tradition. These stories were passed down for purpose. And the purpose was that the people would remember that they would see God's faithfulness from generation to generation. That they would see these covenant and these promises that God had initiated and they would say, God is faithful. That's right. Maybe our circumstances are difficult now, but He is faithful. He has proven Himself. It is worth the cost to follow Him. We too should be faithful. And the story that we're going to look at today is is a story where this idea... This idea that this story is not just information. It's just not something to remember, to learn. It's a story of transformation, and this story embodies it. It's the story of Joseph, the final story. And what we see happens is we actually see kind of this summary statement, not just of of his life, but of the entire book of Genesis. Now, for as much credit as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get as the patriarchs of the family of Israel, uh, God's community that's going to be a blessing to the world. The story of Joseph really dominates all of Genesis. It starts in Genesis 37 and goes all the way up to 50. I mean, his narrative is so long and so influential to this entire book and, and to the whole Old Testament, actually. And there's something that Joseph learns in this story. He learns something in this story that completely transforms his life. And if you choose to, you cannot just listen to what he learns. You cannot just choose to remember what he learns. You can choose to apply what he learns because it will completely transform your lives. Now, our text is from Genesis chapter 50. So if you have your Bibles, make sure that you turn to that. We will have some of the text up there on the screen. But before we get too far into Genesis chapter 50, I want to back up a little bit and I want to go to Genesis 49. Two weeks ago, Ron Taze was speaking about the blessings and the curses that Jacob gives his sons. But towards the end of that chapter, we have some specific instructions that are given to the brothers, so, or to his sons, which are the brothers. So uh, Jacob, he, he's just about to die, and he tes- says all these words of truth to his sons. And then he gives his dying wish. And his dying wish is to be buried with his family. And so if you skim that part and at the end of Genesis 49, you'll get all these details that the storyteller tells us. We'll we'll find out that then this, into chapter 50, Joseph takes the same request. He repeats it to Pharaoh. Uh, We find out that it's a very specific spot that Jacob wants to be buried. He wants to be buried in this cave that's on this plot of land that his father Abraham had purchased. And if you want to flip back in your Bibles to Genesis 23, there's an entire chapter about this cave in this land. And I find it interesting because sometimes I'll read the Bible, specifically Genesis, and I'll think, why is there so much detail about this? Like, it's a cave and a field. I don't care. Like, if if we're going to spend more time on detail, narrator, can we go back to creation? Like, when did the earth start? And tell me all the details. And where are the dinosaurs? And what did God think of this? He, He doesn't say anything here. But instead, we have this whole chapter about Abraham when his wife Sarah dies. He thinks, well, I I need to bury my dead. And so he goes to the Canaanites and he says, I need a plot of land to bury my dead. And and they basically say, "Um, well, 
you can have it. There's one, I believe his name is Ephron, there's, there's one individual, and they say, well, that's his field. And he says, yes, you can have it, you can bury your field. And he says, no, I want to pay for it. He's very specific. He's going to pay, pay fair market price for this field in this cave. And sure enough, he does it. We get this whole chapter about it. Abraham, he buries his wife Sarah there. Then later on, Abraham dies. He's buried there. Then later on in the Genesis story, we find out that Isaac dies and his son Jacob and Esau, they bury him there. And now Jacob is saying on his deathbed, don't bury me here in Gosham in Egypt. No, take me back. Let me rest with my fathers. You've got to think, why? <laughs> like, who cares? He's dead. What does it matter? But what the author wants us to remember is that God's promises to Abraham's family are so significant. So significant. This is, this is the big story that's going on. And Jacob recognizes. Remember, Jacob, he, he's the, the supplanter. He's the deceiver. He's the one that wants to do everything he possibly can to get this blessing from God. And he understands his whole life. He's living for this blessing. He wants to go back to this land of promise. That's where he wants his, his bones to rest with his father. That's where he believes that not his body is going to be, but actually the living ancestors of him are going to be living in that same land of promise. And so we get a sense in the death of Jacob, the, this kind of partial fulfillment of this promise that God has made to this family. And so in Genesis 49, verse 33, uh, we hear these words of finality. When Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he drew up his feet into bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then we go into chapter 50, verses 1 to 14. Here we go. We have, we have a whole bunch more about this death processional, this mourning period. And we find out that this isn't just 12 sons that are involved. This is their entire family. And what's more than that, it's Pharaoh's officials. And we have Egypt, this entire region that's mourning. They're lamenting. And they have this large caravan. And they go from Egypt and, and they go into Canaan. And we actually have a scene in verse 11 where the Canaanites say, Whoa! Listen to all the wailing in the morning. The, the, the Egyptians, they're lamenting a death. This is a solemn ceremony that's going on. And it's interesting to note here, this is a, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's comical, maybe it's foreshadowing, maybe it's intriguing, I don't know really how to describe it here. But we get a sense here that this trip from Egypt to Canaan is pretty simple. They just go. There's no timeline, there's no difficulties, there's no trials, there's no doubt, they just go. And we find out later in the story in Exodus, this takes generations for the people of Israel to occupy the land. And it's intriguing to think that in his death, in Jacob's death, he's actually showing his ancestors this is the way to the promised land as they take his bones to rest with his fathers. And so we, we get this story of completion of Jacob's life. He is, his body is settled with his fathers, and then Joseph and his brothers, they return back to Egypt, and they settle back in Gosham, where they've actually had uh, many more people. Their family has expanded, and they own property there, and life continues to go on. But here's the catch. There's some unfinished business. There's some unfinished business. Jacob, the patriarch, is dead, and now it's just the brothers. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 15 of Genesis 50. And I'm reading from the, the uh, New Revised Standard Version. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did him? Uh, Joseph's brothers aren't stupid. 
I mean, there, there are a number of things we see in this story. Uh, they're deceiving, they're jealous, they're selfish, they're violent. But I don't think there's too much that shows that they're stupid. They're, they're pretty opportunistic. I mean, at one point they wanted to kill Joseph, but then one of them said, well, that doesn't profit us anything. Let's sell him off to slavery. We'll at least get 20 shekels of silver. And they're not stupid in this sense either. They recognize that Joseph, as the favorite son of this family, he loved his father. He would do anything seemingly for his father. He was extremely obedient to his father, even when harm was, was going to be the final result, as we saw what happened when he went to check in on his brothers and, and all the things that ensued from there. And so his brothers realized, our father is gone. <laughs> and now we're dealing with our brother Joseph, who we really, really messed up his life. I mean, he was, he was a young man at this point, and they basically stole his youth from him. They stole his relationship with his father and his mother. Uh, They took him from a family of wealth and prominence. They sold him into slavery and all sorts of hardship. And so now his brothers are probably thinking to themselves, we can never repay Joseph back. What are we going to do? Verse 16. So they approached Joseph. They came to Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. Now, let's envision this for a minute, because when I read this story, I still think of Joseph as a 17-year-old and his brothers are older. Maybe they're in their mid-20s or something like that. Uh, but but this we've got many, many years now that have happened. In fact, uh, there's part of, of Genesis, I think they said that they were, they were in Egypt for about 17 to 20 years uh, when they all moved down to Egypt. We know that the brothers, I believe all the brothers are fathers. Many of them are grandfathers. Probably some of them are great-grandfathers. So these are not young, young kids who are kind of talking about, okay, you know, you did this to me, you punched me in the arm, now I'm going to sock you in the face as kind of a repayment. Uh, this, this is serious stuff. And you get this sense here. Here's Joseph. His brothers come and tell him this. Everyone's weeping. And his brothers are face down in the dirt. I mean, they've got dirt in their beard. They maybe have their eyes open, weeping, looking at his sandals. And we get this this strange vision of this original dream that Joseph had of of the sheaves bowing down to him. Uh, These are old, mature men with lots to lose. And they're begging him. They're begging him to be slaves. That's kind of the best plan that they can have for some sort of repayment here. And we've got Joseph here who has all the chips on his side. He's playing with the house here. And it's his decision to make now. And this is the the brother that they deceived. This is the brother who they took everything from. And now this is the brother who has saved them from starvation and the famine. And he holds all the chips. And he says to them in the next verse, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And then the storyteller adds this. In this way, Joseph reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Now, who does this? I mean, who forgives someone for trying to kill them? 
Who forgives not just one person, but actually a group of people? Flesh and blood, same father, for trying to kill them. I mean, this is one of the most fascinating stories in the entire Bible, that Joseph responds in this way to what his brothers say. One thing that I find very interesting about Joseph's story is, is for as long as this story is, spans so much of Genesis, we actually don't hear Joseph say a whole lot. He's quoted a few times, but almost every time he's quoted, he's just giving us information. We don't hear a lot about how he feels, what he thinks. We know that there's several times when, when he weeps with emotion and, and the emotion kind of draws him away into uh, to a place where he tries to uh, kind of refocus himself. But we don't really get a lot for why he does the things that he does. We hear him as a youth tell the dreams to his family. We hear him later on when, when uh, Potiphar's wife makes an advance on him. He gives some good logic for why he shouldn't do that. We hear him interpret the dreams for the cupbearer and for the baker and for Pharaoh himself. And there's a lot of repetition there. We hear the scenes where he's talking to his brothers. And it's very business-oriented. And it just seems very, very cut and dry. But we don't really get a sense for why Joseph has done any of this. It's almost like he's kind of kept his philosophy on life close to his chest until now. Until now, until he decides to respond to kind of this pseudo-confession of his brothers where they kind of appeal to the father, don't really own up on it, and basically say, just make us your slaves. And this is when he shows us the conviction of his heart that runs so deep. He says, God can use evil for good. God can use evil for good. Now, before he tells us this, he uses a phrase that's very interesting. So we'll back up and we'll look at what he begins by saying. He says, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were one of the brothers with my my face in the dirt, uh, thinking about what would happen to me, and my brother said to me, do not be afraid, I would be really afraid. I mean, do not be afraid. Oh boy, here we go. Do not be afraid. And the second thing he says might even been even scarier. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now think about this for a second. This is Joseph. This is the ruler of Egypt. This is the man who has rose into prominence. According to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's only greater in title. Other than that, Joseph rules everything. This is a man who saved not just Egypt, but the entire region from starvation and death from this famine. So in many ways, yeah, actually he is in the place of God, isn't he? Certainly for the brothers, you talk about who's in the place of God in Egypt, I would say probably Joseph. And he uses this phrase. Now here's the interesting thing. His father Jacob uses this exact same phrase in the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 30. You remember how Jacob had two wives, two sisters? He got duped into marrying Leah. And Leah was, was um, very capable of bearing children. She had a number of children. And her sister Rachel, she wasn't quite as successful. She went through a time of barrenness. And she's so jealous and so bitter and so frustrated by the fact that she can't bear Jacob any children that she actually says to him, give me children or I'll die. It's always a fun thing to probably try to respond to as a spouse. And you remember what Jacob says? Am I in the place of God? That's what his response is to her. Kind of this rhetorical question. Now it's interesting though, Because Jacob uses this phrase to show his inability to act as God. Joseph uses this phrase to show his restraint to act like God. You get this sense from Jacob, this cunning, deceitful, 
guy who, who uses every sort of thing to his advantage that if he was in the place of God, sure, absolutely. You can have children, Rachel. I'll, I'll, I'll make that done right now. And now his son Joseph rises to prominence, almost to a place of complete authority, and he decides to use his power in, a re, in restraint to curb what God has given him according to what God wants done. And it's all because Joseph has learned that God can use evil for good. Now I want to pause here for a second because we're looking specifically at this story here in Egypt between Joseph and his brothers. But we have this bigger Genesis story going on as well. And that's what we're concluding today, this entire series of this great, great book. And I think if we had to summarize this book and say, well, what's the main theme of this book? What's going on? What's the storyteller trying to tell us? I think I personally would use the summary of covenant. We have this God who desires a plan for his people and he enters into various covenants with his people from creation to Noah to Abraham. And the the whole story is about how God is faithful to his people and then how his people are going to respond. And, and, And it continues throughout the Old Testament. And so we could start from the very beginning, but we probably don't have the time to do that. So let's just go to Abraham and let's take a look of this blessing and this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Remember, there's three promises. Three promises to Abraham from this covenant. The first one, great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. This is Genesis chapter 12, if you want to look at it in your Bibles. There's going to be so many family members that you're going to have, Abraham. You can't even number them. You can't count them. More stars, more sand, all these uh, different analogies to help them understand you're going to have a lot of kids. Secondly, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who who curse you. And in fact, you're going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Your family will be. And then thirdly, he says, I'm going to give you land. I have this land of promise for you. And from this point on in the story, every single story that we have, every bit of information that the the narrator gives us, tells us that everything that's going on is either a threat to this covenant, a threat to these blessings, or it's a fulfillment of them. Every one. Let's, let's just look at a few of them. They're going to come up pretty quick on the screen. We have Isaac. He's the heir, right? Isaac has no wife. And then when he has a wife, he can't have kids. That's a pretty big threat to descendants, don't you think? God takes care of that. Next, we have famine. Famine happens a lot in this book. Famine, so they have to, to move to a different region. And again, that does not seem to mess up God's plan at all. We have sibling rivalry. We have Jacob and Esau having a wrestling match in, in Rebecca's womb. And then later on, they're trying to kill each other, right? Again, a threat to this covenant. We have angry neighbors. This chapter that we skipped over, which is such an intriguing chapter to study, Genesis 34, where uh, Simeon and Levi act out of anger and violence, and, and they basically kill off this entire community. And we have angry neighbors. You think about this promise how was how killing off a community being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth? Well, that's a pretty major threat. It puts Jacob in a very difficult situation. Sibling rivalry, yet another theme, pops up right there again. Joseph's brothers hate him. They sell him off. They hope that he dies. Then we have more family discord as the brothers get older. We have Reuben, who subverts his father's authority, and he sleeps with one of his father's wives. We have Simeon and Levi, again, attacking this city, not something that their father had envisioned. We have Judah and Tamar, again, unrighteous Judah doing this sort of terrible act. Then we have famine again with the Joseph story. Egypt and Canaan, they waste away because of the famine. And what do we learn from all these stories? 
What do we learn about all these different threats to God's covenant, to his promises? We learn that these threats don't overtake God's plan. Instead, God uses these threats and he turns them into good. Everyone. He just shifts whatever circumstances are happening and he shifts them into good. This is why adversity exists. This is why sin is allowed to run its course. This is why people deceive one another. And sometimes there are consequences. Sometimes there aren't. This is why there's famine in different parts of the land. And God uses all of these threats to his promise. And he just seems to shift them and turn good results into them. You know, some of these events are natural consequences of sin. Some of them are foolish behavior by individuals. And some of them are are just flat-out uh, kind of neutral things, such as barrenness of some of, of, these, of some of these wives, such as the famine. Uh, some of them just seem to be kind of these happenings. And the narrator doesn't really tell us whether these are good things or bad things. God doesn't really give us a, a synopsis for what is going on. They're just there. But what we find out is they're all threats, and God uses these threats for good. This is why when Joseph goes through hardship and injustice, when his brothers sell him off, when Potiphar's wife lies about what happens, when the cupbearer forgets about him. This is why the narrator puts this little phrase in right when he's going through the worst-case scenario. This is when the narrator says, and God was with Joseph. And you kind of get the sense of, oh, God's still with Joseph and things keep getting worse and worse. Why is God's presence linked to Joseph's hardship? to show us that God can use evil for good. Now, I'm confident that if Joseph were here with us today, and we could ask him a question, which sometimes I dream about asking biblical writers or characters, if we could just ask you a couple of questions to clarify this story and to know how we should live, you know, it would be so helpful. Well, I bet if, if we asked him the same question that I asked you earlier today, what did you learn this summer? What did you learn today? I bet you if we asked Joseph what he learned, whether it was when he was in Egypt, over the span of a decade or so in his life, I bet you he would respond pretty close to what we see in Genesis 50, chapter, or verse 20. God can use evil for good. This is the understanding that transformed Joseph's life. He took this principle, he took this belief, and then he lived by it. This is what empowered him to forgive his brothers. This is what sustained him through all the years of injustice. God can use evil for good. Now we've seen this principle worked out in Joseph's life. And the question is, will you choose to apply this principle to your life? I want to credit John Walton for his commentary on this book. And uh, I also want to cite a quotation of his about a possible application to this. Because this is what we're really here for, right? Stories are helpful. Principles are even more helpful. But we want something we can hold on to. How are we going to take this teaching that God can use evil for good and how are we going to apply it to our life? What do we do from here? This is what he says. Biblical narrative is often content to show us what God is like without, de- without detailing what we are to do about it. Say that again. Biblical narrative, which is what Genesis, that's the genre of Genesis, is what Genesis is all about. Genesis is often content to show us what God is like without detailing what we are to do about it. When I first read this, I felt ripped off. What? That's your application section? What is that? What a cop-out. And you think about it, and it's so true. 
we don't really get a whole lot of sense in Genesis for what we're supposed to do. We have story after story about people stumbling, sometimes people being obedient, all these different threats coming, and God being faithful. God is good, as we see on this canvas. And what we find out here is that this is really something that we have to work out in our own life. The application for you and I very likely will be different. But God will use this principle in your life if you submit yourself to it. If you truly believe that God can use evil for good in your own life, you'll see opportunities to make this possible. Maybe it has to do with breaking down some of that vengeance that you feel from a past wrong that someone did for you that you've been harboring for a long time. Maybe it changes your perspective that when you do face adversity, when you do get bad luck, when you do have injustice happens, maybe it changes your attitude towards that from a, oh, why me, into a, you know what? God's at work here. Maybe he'll use this for good. It's up to you how you choose to apply it. And I would suggest to you that you meditate on this and you ask God to reveal to you what that looks like in your own life for God to use evil for good. And if we really believe that God can do this, if we really believe that God can use evil for good, can you imagine what it would do to our lives? Can you imagine what it would do to our community of Willoughby and Clayton and Walnut Grove and Surrey and beyond if we are known as a people who believe in this principle that God can use evil for good? It's true in Joseph's life. Will it be true of our lives? Let's close our time with prayer. And as we pray, the music team will come up and they'll lead us through one final song. Lord God, we want to thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you, God, for the inspiration that it is to us. This understanding that throughout the entire book, it's not just the pinnacle of Joseph's life, Lord. This is the pinnacle of, of the entire book, this understanding that you will use everything. Threats, sin, injustice. You can use all sorts of form of adversity and evil and you can turn it into good. God, help us to understand how we apply this message to our lives. Help us examine our lives and know that this is now how we should live. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us with the conviction and the courage and the sustainability of Joseph to press on with that faith that transforms our life, that you will use evil for good. Thanks, God, for the servants who have followed you throughout the years and how we can learn from them and for the teaching of your word today. Amen.